How you doing this morning? I talked to a few people. There's been sort of a different answers to that question. Some of us have had a kind of a tiring morning, running around. If you've had kind of a rough morning, let's see those hands. I'm going to be honest, if, you, if you've had a rough morning. Okay, thanks for being honest. It's hard sometimes to pull it all together, isn't it? And we don't want to give the impression that we want to just go from song to message to all. We don't want to just keep you busy necessarily in the service as we do in our lives. Sometimes we just need to take a moment and take a deep breath. Because what we talk about today is so incredibly important. I can't even stress to you how important it is that you hear this message from your heart, that you hear God's word, and that we lean our lives in the direction of what he would have us to do today. It's very important. So I just want to take just a moment, can we? And just pray, and just, would you pray with me, God? Would you open my heart to what you want to say? Would you give me courage to be obedient to you? Let's just, let's just pray real quick, can we? Father, Lord, often in our lives we go from busy thing to busy thing to expectation, uh, disappointment, failure, occasional success, occasional this or that. But God, it, it's hard sometimes just to, just to live up to our own expectations, much less anybody else's. God, we, we just, as a family, we want to come to you this morning. We want to lay down those expectations, lay down whatever weariness we're feeling in our hearts and souls in this moment. Whatever difficulty has been with us today, help us to realize we wrestle not against just alarm clocks and flesh and blood, and help us not to, to think that this is just about a busy morning, God. There's a spiritual warfare at play. It is so important that we hear your word today. It is so important, God, that we turn our hearts and our souls to you and your word and we find ourselves leaning to obedience and submission to you, O oh God. We just take a deep breath in your mercy, in your grace, in your presence, God. You are with us. You said we're two or three gathered together in your name. You're right there in the midst. Lord, you're here. Give us your peace. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak to us and change us as a result of being with you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. So glad you're with us today at South City Church. My name is Drew Klein. I'm one of the pastors here. We started a series last Sunday called Neighbor. And it's based on that verse of scripture that was in the, the bumper there. Uh, it's a great commandment, Matthew 22, that just says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And another version says your strength. And Jesus says, this is the first and greatest commandment. And also love your neighbor as yourself. And we're familiar with that, right? We know that. We're very, uh, we're used to hearing that maybe. But how many of us are truly doing it? Because Jesus said it's the first in greatest commandment. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, you, if there's a priority in your life, if there's one thing that ought to be important to you, it needs to be, friends, your love of Jesus. Your all-encompassing love of God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
And then when that's the case, when that's true of who you are, then it'll move you to love people. That's our prayer. And as we go through these conversations over the next few weeks about loving our neighbors, my prayer is that God would change us in, in the meantime to become that loving people who honor him, not only with our love for him, but how we love each other. Last week, we talked about a few things. I want to give you a recap if you weren't here. Uh, we talked about the fact that we can't truly love our neighbors if we don't love ourselves. And many of us don't know how to love ourselves. Many of us have trouble understanding what that even means. We talked about the fact that the fall of man caused us, well, the, before the fall, right, God had created this beautiful place, the Garden of Eden. And he had made man and woman. We're going to get into this. We're going to look at that text in Genesis in just a moment. But this perfect place and this perfect environment, but when the fall happened and sin entered the world, we stopped focusing on our creator and caring for one another. And we started blaming one another and covering our shame. That's what happened. And so today, in, in the dysfunction of relationships that you find yourself in, that I find myself in, is a direct result of that fall and a direct result of us taking our focus off of him and each other and focusing on, on, on ourselves. So sometimes when we say, what does it mean to love your neighbor? We don't even know where to start because I don't know that I'm ready. We're focused on me. I don't know that I know what to say. Focused on me. Uh, that guy makes a lot more money than, than, than I do. Focused on, on me, what I'm not, right? What does it mean to love our neighbor? Well, the first thing we have to do is have the love of Jesus in our hearts to realize that we can be confident in who he's made us as his sons and daughters. Our identity, our security, our, our, our everything has to be in him so that we walk with confidence as we love people because we're not loving them with our love. We're loving them with a supernatural love. This is not contingent upon whether you can muster it, right? This is contingent upon obedience. This is contingent upon a life lived, fully encompassed with a love for God, with all that we are. But to love your neighbors yourself, you have to learn to see them as yourself. You got to see them as people in need, just like you are. People who've made mistakes, people who have uh, issues, family issues, financial issues, just like we do. And how often we, we put people on a different pedestal and we go, well, I can't deal with that because of whatever reason. And we, we end up not seeing people as ourselves. And then lastly, we talked about the fact that when we truly begin to love others, our neighbor, as ourselves, it proves that we're doing the first commandment. It proves it. Because I don't, honestly, I don't think you can get those backwards. I don't think it's possible to love your neighbor as yourself apart from loving God with all that you are and all that you have. Today I want to talk about your closest neighbor. Talk about your closest neighbor, and I'm not talking about anybody outside your front door. I'm talking about the people inside your home. And when I say home, I mean it's some of that figuratively. I want to talk today about your husbands, your wives, your children, uh, your parents, I want brothers, sisters, even extended family. I want us to talk a little bit about that today. You know, the sad reality is many of us are so familiar with some of our family members, and I mentioned this in another message a while back. <laughs> We've become so familiar with our family members that sometimes we treat a stranger on the street better than we treat our family members. Am I wrong? Especially in the South. Come into my home, do you want some sweet tea or coffee, right? What can I get you? I got a piece of pie. But, but if your wife says, hey, can you help me with the dishes? I'm kind of been working all day. 
how often we treat those closest to us less than we treat a stranger. Today I want to talk about that. I want, I want to talk about the fact that we need to love the neighbor closest to us, our families. Sadly, the most, uh, most of the time the people that we hurt the deepest are those we love the most. Isn't that true? I don't know if you know this, but, uh, or if you've ever been to Christian counseling or counseling of other kinds, sometimes when you, when you go to a counselor's office, at some point in a counselor's office, and I've, I've spent some time in a counselor's office, there's no shame in that. Now, I, I, by the way, there's no shame in that, right? If, if, if you need to go see somebody, do that. I, I highly encourage that. But as I've spent time at different times in my life with a counselor, talking over my walk with Jesus and how I live that out with people in relationships, at some point in a counseling session, they're going to take you back probably to your family of origin, right? They're going to go, Listen, I see you're having this dysfunction in your present reality here. How, how did your parents deal with that thing? It all goes back to your family of origin. Lori and I were in some counseling back uh, years and years ago, and we were trying to work out some details in our, in our own family about children and some other things we were struggling with, with each other. We weren't seeing eye to eye. And we went to a counselor, a friend of ours who was a counselor, and she, she used a, a, a tool called a genogram. And it's very interesting. What it is is just, she just took a big poster board and she started writing a line for Lori's life and a line for my life. And she started taking notes on specific issues within our family of origin. Let's talk about moments of drama. Let's talk about major events that happened. And she would make a break or whatever. She would make these little signals that helped, as you look at the genogram, it help you understand, here's some issues that you've had in your family. And it's not even just your life growing up. Sometimes it has to do with your parents' life or your grandparents' life. Here's an example. Sometimes you, 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 in counseling, you might be sitting with your counselor and, and, and she says, well, you just really have trouble relating to other people. And why? Well, you don't trust people. Why is that? She takes you back to your, well, my mom was, very, she was, she was this, um, this is not my mom, I'm giving you an example, right? <laughs> uh, not you, mom. Uh, well, my, you know, my mom, she was very, uh, she didn't trust people and she never wanted me to be with anybody or trust anyone. You back up a little bit, for, why, why is that? Well, it's because my mom never, her mom never trusted anybody. She didn't want me to really spend time with people because she was abused. And see, what happens is, we have a, some event of dysfunction that we pass down in our family. And now, two or three generations later, we're going, why do I not trust people? And it might have started way back a generation or two ago with some event of dysfunction or sinfulness or, or abuse or no, no telling what the situation is. But this genogram is so powerful. It's a powerful tool to take a look at your life. But there's no question, you are who you are because of your family, right? Right? And it's not just some of us say, well, yeah, I know that we, you know, my family, we're, we're kind of big on sandwiches. My father had a, a deli growing up. And so one of the things about our family, we like, my, my wife calls us sandwich snobs. And it's completely true. I, I don't know what to say about it. We are completely, you know, Lori, she can make a sandwich. She puts a piece of bread and a piece of turkey and great, to, good to go. And I'm like, what? What kind of bread did you use? Right? <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm, the sandwich I'm going to make is going to look a little different. It's going to taste a little better. And um, it's the truth. But again, this is just sort of a family thing. But sometimes it's not as simple or, or, or silly or as trivial as preferences in your home. Sometimes it has to do 
with, how did your family deal with conflict? You find out as soon as you get married, right? Or even before. Because now all of a sudden you and your spouse or, or, or fiance, you got to deal with conflict and she deals with it differently than I do. Why? Because her family dealt with it differently than my family did. How did your family deal with money? How did your family look at faith and a life in Jesus? Was it okay just to go to Sunday at uh, church and just as long as you're there, that's good, but you can live how, like the devil the rest of the week? No, that's, that's inconsistent with maybe what my family grew up with. And now you're coming together and you've got to make this thing work. You are who you are in so many ways because of who you come from, your family of origin. I'm going I'm to mention this. This is a great book. I mentioned it last week, Befriend by Scott Sauls. I'm going to have a few quotes from him. He just nailed this topic this week. He says, marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Children are a heritage from the Lord and pictures of God's kingdom. Parents provide for, teach, and nurture their children and should be honored for this. God is our father and we are his children. Jesus is both our God and our elder brother. Yet, family is the source of many of our deepest wounds. Pain, loss, anger, alienation, codependency, and other forms of dysfunction are often conceived and cultivated within our families. It's true, isn't it? See, our families can be unbelievably broken places. I don't care, I don't care how wonderful your parents were, uh, how, how great things seemed to be, at some point there was brokenness. At some point there was dysfunction. You know why? Because in every one of our families are sinful people. Some of your families you grew up with were people trying to, to honor Jesus and become like him, and you had a, a, maybe a better experience than someone else did. Sometimes when I even use the word family, some of you go, ugh, I don't even want to be here. Because of this visceral reaction to the concept of family. Every Father's Day, I, I'll talk to somebody as I talk sometimes about godly fathers, and they can hardly sit still in their seat because they didn't have one. And it's so painful to talk about what a godly father seems like. And sometimes people can't even trust heavenly father because they didn't have a good earthly father. Families can be so broken, and yet, friends, here's the hope. You have an opportunity to change the world and never even leave your home. That's what we have this morning. We have an opportunity to literally change the world without even leaving our homes. If we can learn to love our families the way we love ourselves, or better yet, the way Jesus has loved us, there is no end, literally no end to the impact and influence that we can make on our, our spouses, on our children, on our extended family. And that's exactly what God intends to do through you if you know him as your Savior. Through this series, I'm going to keep bringing us back to this, this great commandment in this first part of this commandment, right? Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love, love the Lord. And then Jesus said, this is the first and greatest commandment. In other words, this is the greatest importance. This has the highest priority. Love God. Love him with all that you are. And it's out of loving him that you're going to have the ability, the capacity now to love somebody else, family or anyone else. But I'm going to keep bringing you back to the priority every week of the fact that we can't love any of these neighbors we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about a bunch of them over the next few weeks. 
until we realize that we have to love God with all that we are. I'm going to give you three notes this morning, three, three main topics. I didn't put them on your card, but you can if you want. The first one is this, the importance of family. The importance of family. And when I say that, I, I could almost shudder. <laughs> I could almost shake physically because it's so un- incredibly important. The family is so important. It's so important. It, it is and it was at its creation, its advent, when, when God created man and woman and ultimately the capacity for family. I want you to see something. He was creating the primary platform, the primary vehicle for all of human flourishing. T- think, take that in for a minute. He was creating the primary platform for all of human flourishing. Go with me again. Garden of Eden, perfect in every way. Wonderful in every way. Beautiful in every way. He creates man. And he decides man shouldn't be alone. He creates Eve. In fact, I, I, I want us just to read it. But the reality is the family is what comes out of God wanting to give us the greatest experience in relationship that we can have. Apart from relationship with him. Again, the first and most important is our relationship with him. The second most important, family. Look with me in Genesis 2, 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Look at this last sentence especially. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God, when he saw Adam with a need, he needed a helper. He needed a companion. God decided he wanted to bless him as he had blessed him with everything else. I'm going to give you something that's absolutely perfect. I'm going to give you something that just is going to blow your mind, Adam. And he creates this woman. God did not want us to be alone. He wanted us, listen, to be fully known and completely loved. To be naked and unashamed. God's saying, I want you to be fully known. There's going to be nothing between the two of you. And I want you to be completely loved. I, I want you to think about the importance of what is happening here in Genesis. A little bit later, and we're going to look at this verse in just a little bit, but Paul's going to say to us in Ephesians that the love we have for one another, husband and wife, is literally the mystery of God's love for his church. In other words, we're going to model for the world what God's love is supposed to look like for the world. It's a mystery. In other words, I'm going to try and explain this. I hope you get it, but there's a mysterious element to this. But at the very least, can we acknowledge this? The purpose of the family is to give mankind the greatest life experience he can possibly know relationally, apart from relationship with God, and to help us understand how Almighty God wants to relate to us. That's how important family is. 
Can you take that in? Can you even try and wrap your brain around the importance of the family? When you look at those two bookends in a way? But one of the reasons our country, one of the reasons you maybe, one of the reasons some of your families are so far from human flourishing. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Human flourishing, everything is amazing. Our relationship is great. My, all my relationships are great. My finances are in order. I'm happy. I'm contented. I, I, I'm satisfied. I, I have joy. I have life. I'm flourishing. That was God's desire for human beings. And the vehicle to do that was in the family. But do you reason, realize the reason we're so far from human flourishing is because we have chosen to not follow God's design for that flourishing. We've chosen to go our own way and do our own thing. We've chosen happiness over contentment, um, over commitment. Right? When you talk about a marriage relationship, I'm not really feeling it, honey. Not happy. I'm just, how many, how many have you heard this even? People have walked through divorce or struggle. I'm just not happy. Who cares about your happiness when you stood before God Almighty and made a covenant to love in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad, for richer or poor? And then we say, just not happy. The covenant we make with each other and with the Lord has got to be greater than our happiness. It's got to be greater than our preferences. We've chosen instant gratification over biblical obedience, right? I just want this now. I want it my way. This is, and I, I just, that's all I think about. Well, you're thinking about the wrong thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And when that becomes who you are, when that becomes your identity, then you can walk through difficult moments in marriage. You can walk through heart-aching, breaking difficulty in families and in jobs and in life. You can do it because you're choosing to trust God Almighty above what you feel, above what you think. Our feelings are so very shallow. We've chosen rebellion instead of surrender. And look what we've got. Look what, look what we've got. See, God has designed the most beautiful life and relational experience that we could possibly have next to loving and knowing him in the family. And friends, if we continue to disobey God and his word, his directive for the family... We're not going to have a civilization left. It's the truth. When we begin to say, you're a boy, but I guess if you want to be a girl, you can be a girl. Right? Or we say, God's word says marriage is between a man and a woman, but if you want to do something else, you can do it. If we continue to push back against God's word and the truth of who he is and says for us to be, we won't have a civilization left. The family and God's design is so incredibly important. I can't understate it. Here's the second note I want to give you this morning. To love your family best, love them second. To love your family best, love them second. You know, I, I love my family. I really do. In fact, 
is part of the problem. I love my family so much, sometimes I put it above God. God said in in the commandments, right? He says, you shall have no other God before me. And so anything that's in your life that has greater importance than you loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is an idol. And I, friends, I'm, I'm being, this is confessional time. I struggle with making my family my God. You know why? Because the power I sense in my relationship with my beautiful wife, the power that I feel, the love I feel in my heart for my babies is so otherworldly. I've never experienced anything like it. And it's easy to put them on a pedestal and go, I can go hug her, I can touch her, I can, I can love them. But the biblical model for us as believers in Jesus is to, if we're going to love them best, we've got to love them second. We have the example of Abraham and Isaac. Now, we waited 12 years to have a baby. Here's Abraham. He's 100 years old. He's finally got his boy. And God says, do you love me most or do you love that boy? In fact, I want you to sacrifice that boy. What? Abraham has to walk his son. He's waited decades and decades and decades to this mountaintop and lay him on an altar with a knife above him ready to end his life. That was never God's plan. It was never what God wanted. God was testing Abraham, do you love me most? Above your family? Above this child? What do you love most? We also see it in Jesus' family. Right? We see it in Jesus' family. Look with me. Mark 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, uh, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. That's Mary and his brothers saying, Jesus is out of his mind. Verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus, this is what he says, who are my mother and brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and sister uh, and brother. Jesus is saying, if you're going to love your family, you've got to love them second. You got to love me most. This is the way he's designed it, that we have a relationship with him, that when we think about serving him, it it makes it possible for us to serve someone else because you and your humanity will never want to serve someone apart from obedience in Jesus. Even in Jesus' family, he's showing us that there's a greater importance to being true to God's will, true to relationship with the Father than even loving your family. In fact, Jesus made a a pretty provocative statement in Luke 14. We're not going to look at it, but you can check it out later. Jesus says to the crowd, he says, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to hate your family. You have to hate your mother and brother and father. And you have to hate your own life if you're going to be my disciple. Now, if you just look at that from the surface level, you go, Jesus, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Jesus is saying this very example. 
you have to have first things first. He's not saying, I, I hate my family. He's not saying, I don't want to be connected to my earthly family. He's not saying that. He's not saying, I want to serve, because we have other texts that we're going to look at this morning that show, show different. Jesus is being hyperbolic in a way to show a point. He's saying, you have to love me most. You have to love me first. It has to be your first commitment above how you feel, above what you've experienced. Be obedient to me. Above what you think you know, trust his design, trust his plan, obey his command. We have to love him most. Jesus even tells a story, uh, a writer in one of the gospels tells a story of Jesus when he's uh, surrounded by people, his disciples, one of them comes up to him and says, hey Jesus, he says, I, I need to go bury my father. Remember what Jesus says to him? He says, let the dead bury the dead. Now, when you, again, when you first look at that at a surface level, you think, man, that's kind of cold. Dang, Jesus. But here's the thing. He wasn't being cold at all. This was a colloquial phrase in, in, in the Middle East. I need to go bury my father meant I need to go be with my family as he retires, as he finishes up his business. And really, when you get down to it, what it meant was I need to make sure I've got some, some, some money in the bank. That's what it gets down to. I need to make sure that daddy don't forget to leave me something when he dies, whenever that is. See, Jesus sees through our hearts to our, great, to our real intent. And he saw through that man's real intent and through that colloquial phrase and said, hey, let the dead bury their dead. In other words, if you're my disciple, trust me above anything else, even above your family, even above your family. Listen, when we serve the Lord, we put our faith, our identity, our strength, our purpose in Christ alone, that's when we truly learn how to serve our families. That's when. That's when. I want to look at that together. This is the third thing I want to show you this morning. First of all, I talked about how important it is. Family's unbelievably important. So incredibly important. And then we talk about the fact that if we're going to love our families best, we've got to love them second. And then the big question is, how do we do that? This is going to sound simple. And if you know me very well, you know I'm a pretty simple guy. This is simple. Ready? I didn't say it's easy, but it's simple. Follow the instructions. Follow the instructions. Trust God's design. Obey his commands. Follow the instructions. Trust God's design. Obey his commands. It's very simple. It's very simple. I don't have any really uh, revelatory material here. There's nothing that's going to make you go, whoa. Here's what I want to do right now. I want to remind you of what God's word says. I want to take you back to something stronger than anything culturally that we can do to, to encourage your marriage. No, I just want to take you to God's word. It's, it's, it's all we need. And let's see his expectation for how we love our families. I'm going to speak to husbands, wives, kids, extended family. Look with me. We're going to start in Ephesians 5. And before I get into this, when we get to Ephesians 5, you need to know that theologians talk about, especially these three sections of Scripture, they call them the family texts or the household texts. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, okay? Those are three sections called the family texts or the household texts. You remember that early believers, the early church, they didn't have the New Testament. It's not like Paul could go, turn over in your Bibles to Colossians, right? No, he was writing to the Colossians. It became the New Testament. 
So what were they teaching believers to, to become uh, established in the faith? How were they establishing them in the faith? They were teaching them these traditions, these rules, these ideas of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and the inspired word of God through the apostles to new believers to establish them in the faith. And what's so cool and so consistent, as you look at Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 and 1 Peter 3, you're going to see unbelievable consistency in what it means to love our families, okay? Look with me, Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, listen to this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for, uh, for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and his church, Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, what I want to do is I want to just really practically break some things down. I want to talk to you wives because you're addressed first in this text and also in the other texts. There's a couple of specific things that, that Paul is saying that you need to do as wives. If we're going to follow the directions, trust the design, and obey his commands, okay? Now try and pull out of your cultural context. Try to pull out of your cultural view of, he said what, right? Try to pull out of that just for a second. Do what, submit to what, and just listen just for a moment. What if we just followed the directions, what if we just trusted the design? What if we just obeyed the commands of God? Wives, this is what he says to you. Submit yourself to your husbands as you do the Lord. That's a big one, right? As you do the Lord, submit to your husband. Submit to your husband in everything. Submit to your husbands. Uh, he says in Colossians 3, it's fitting in the Lord. This is the right thing to do. And then he says at the end of, of Ephesians, respect your husband. Two main things, submission and respect. Your husband is built with a need by God for submission and respect. And when you follow the rules, follow the directions, trust the design and obey his commands, you fill him in a way that, that helps him do what God has called him to do. It's a complementary role. This is the role God has given to wives. There's a role God's given to husbands, and this is it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What's he saying? Men, are you willing to die for your wife? And many of us go, you better believe it. I'll take a bullet. Right? Right now, let's go. I'll fight you right now. What about this? Are you willing to live for your wife? Because it changes the bravado. And all of a sudden, it's not some brave guy that's ready to fight. It's a husband in the kitchen washing the dishes. It's a husband in the baby room changing diapers. It's a husband cleaning toilets. It's a husband doing whatever is needed to lay his life down for his wife, where you say, I sacrifice my life. 
It's not my life anymore. I give it to you, Lord. And because I love you, I'm going to be obedient to you to lay my life down for my wife. He says, love your wife as your own body. In other words, are you selfless in her every need? Selfless. I want her to have what she wants over what I want. I want, to, I want, I want her, to, her needs to be met, and I want to give up my own rights in order to meet that. Love your wife as your own body. He says, leave your father and mother and be united to your wife as one flesh. Guys, are you constantly calling your mom? Mom, I just don't know if I can, you know, don't, don't do that. Leave your father and your mother and focus on your own family. Until you make that break and you say, I'm leaving this family. I'm still a part. I'm still a son. They're still parents. But I'm creating, in this moment, God has created my own home. And it's up to me to follow Christ now and to lead now. It's a big deal. And things will never be right between you and your wife if you haven't truly, physically, emotionally, financially, in every other way, left your family of origin to create your own home. Love your wife as you love yourself. That sounds familiar to our series, doesn't it? Love your wife as, your, as yourself. Then in uh, 1 Peter Oh, in Colossians, I'm sorry, it says, don't be harsh with your wife. Don't be harsh with your wife. 1 Peter 3 says this, be considerate as you live with your wife. Treat her with respect as, a, a, as an heir of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. She is your equal partner. You know, I had brothers growing up, and sometimes we would cook a pizza or something, and and it would be, if we were made a mess in the kitchen, if, if I did the cooking, we would say this, we had this saying, well, I cooked you clean, right? It's like a college roommate kind of thing. If I cooked you clean. You can't take those kind of ideas into your marriage. Honey, I cooked you clean. And I have, and I'm sorry. At times I've done that. I, I've treated uh, this like, hey, you do your part, I'll do my part. No, we have to love. We have to be considerate. We have to treat with respect. They're an heir of the beautiful gospel of Jesus just as you are. But listen to this. Peter says this. If you're not doing that, then your prayers are going to hit a ceiling. Man, does it seem like prayers hadn't gotten through in a few years? Let's go to his word. Have you been considerate with your wife? Have you respected her? Have you treated her as the gracious gift of salvation that she is? Have you treated her as your equal partner? Because until we do that, it says our prayers will be hindered. It's very serious. These are the roles that, that uh, God has given through the apostles. And then children. All of us are children in here. Obey your parents in everything. This pleases the Lord. Because it's right. Obey them in everything. It's the right thing to do. It pleases God. And then it says, honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you. Some of your translations say, so that you may have a long life. Then it says, this is the first commandment with a promise. God makes a promise that if we will honor our parents, if we will love them, care for them, place them on the pedestal of honor, then God, it'll go well with you in your life and you'll have a long life. It's beautiful. That's the role of children. That is their role. Guys, I want to talk to you again. You're not off the hook yet, Right? Husbands had a pretty long list, and now you're going to have another long list as fathers. It says this, do not provoke your children to anger or discouragement, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
I'll be honest with you, when I first read that and I was uh, just kind of thinking through that this week, I thought, how often do I bring my children up in the instruction and the discipline of Drew? How much of my parenting is about me wanting respect, wanting order, wanting things, just do what I say? That's not what it says, though, is it? It says, don't, don't embitter them. Don't make them angry. Don't lead them to discouragement. But instead, disciple them in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Man, notice that in the text in Ephesians, it says it's also our job to cover our wives with the word. That discipleship of your wife is your responsibility, men. That you, you help in that. That you lead in that. And it's also your responsibility to disciple your children. It doesn't say fathers and mothers, disciple your children. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. It says fathers, disciple your children. It's your job. It's my job. How long have we just said, well, that's the church's job, isn't it? Let's let the youth group do it. We'll we'll have occasional conversations. No, 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 no. It is our role as fathers we should be responsible to disciple our children. I want to speak just for a moment to extended family. We just came through Christmas. Everybody make it through Christmas okay? With the whole extended family deal. No, not too many casualties, I hope. You know the scene in Christmas Vacation, which is a classic, by the way. The scene in Christmas Vacation where Clark is standing there at the Christmas tree with Cousin Eddie, right? And they're, and they're holding the glass moose cups. Who has those? They're awesome. Uh, but they're holding the glass moose cups, and you can, Clark is glazed over in his eyes because he can't believe Eddie is there. And Eddie's like, hey, hey, he's looking around, you know, he's just glad to be part of the party. And Clark says, Eddie, can I get you some more eggnog or get you something to eat or drive you out into the desert and leave you for dead? <laughs> Eddie doesn't notice it, and Eddie's like, no, I'm good, you know. He doesn't get it. How many of us around extended family want to drive them to a desert and leave them for dead, Right? It happens sometimes. Family is hard. Relationships are hard. And different processes and upbringing and value sets in that family and this family are going to be different. And it's going to cause you to submit to Jesus. It's going to cause you to go, now I'm going to love the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. And then I'm going to have the capacity to love my extended family. I love this story in the book of Ruth beautiful story about extended family. I want to give you the context and the background here quickly. So here, Naomi is a mother. She has two boys. They both get married. Both of those boys end up dying, and now she has two daughters-in-law, and then a great famine comes into the land. And Naomi hears that there's food back in Moab, and both of these girls are from Moab. And so they head back to Moab, and she tells the girls, listen, feel free to go back to your home. I'm not having any more boys, so you got no hope there right? Go back to your homes. And one daughter says, okay, and she leaves and goes back to her home. Ruth, however, does not. Ruth shows such unbelievable love, respect, dignity, and loyalty to her mother-in-law. You, I've never seen anything like it. I want us to read it this morning. Ruth 1, 16 through 18 says this, Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. 
Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. See, this, this text is used sometimes in, in marriages, in weddings, and, and it's kind of used for the husband and wife. But this is not between Ruth and Boaz. This is between Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And my question for you and I is, do we love our extended family like this? Do we love them like with this kind of loyalty, this kind of honor, this kind of dignity? The only way you can is if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Would you be able to love your, your mother-in-law, your father-in-law, your extended family in this way? It's such a beautiful example of submission and respect and loyalty. God greatly blesses Ruth, doesn't he? And she meets her kinsman redeemer, Boaz. I kind of think it has something to do with the fact that she was willing to love her mother-in-law, to respect and honor her in this beautiful, beautiful way. Some of you say, uh, have you met my extended family? No. But I know they're sinful people, <laughs> just like you are. I know they're broken people, just like you are. Scott Saul says this, he says, when the nuclear family falls out of sync with the beliefs, mission, and ethics of the family of God, there are going to be issues and tensions. But through the issues and tensions, Jesus aims to work in and through his disciples, that's you, for the redeeming of fractured families and for the love of dysfunctional kin. And yet when our anxiety escalates and our anger flares at a family member, it presents an opportunity to examine our own hearts. Wives, husbands, moms, dads, kids, brothers, sisters, extended family, none of our families are perfect. They're all jacked up, every one of them. They're all broken, all full of sinful people. But can I remind you of something as we close? God is the perfect father, and look at all his wayward children. Right? Look at all his rebellious kids. Jesus was the perfect son, and yet his own mother and brother said, he is crazy. we got to go take charge of him. Jesus was the perfect son, and his heavenly father turned his back on him when he was in his most desperate moment on the cross. But he did that for you. He did that for me. So when God turned his back on Jesus, he would never turn his back on you. Jesus was willing to take that separation, to go to hell instead of you so that you don't have to feel that shame and that broken relationship. You can know Christ and you, know, you can know God through his son. What's, what's broken in your family this morning? We've just done sort of a 30,000 foot view of the family today. What's broken in your family? Is there brokenness in your marriage? Is there brokenness in your relationship with your husband or your wife? Is there brokenness in your parenting relationship? Is there brokenness between you and your parents? Brother and sister, is there brokenness between extended family? What is broken in your family? And what changes need to happen in order for you to love your closest neighbor? What needs to happen for you to examine your own heart first? Instead of going, do you know what they did? 
Maybe just look in the mirror and go, I wonder what I did. And how would God have me submit myself, humble myself to love him most, to love them second? I want us to close this morning with a sense of hope. You know, sometimes in family relationships, again, because of the power of the family dynamic and the power of family relationships, if something's broken, sometimes we just go, oh, it's just broken. Oh, it's just broken forever. No, it's not broken forever. The Bible says, as far as it be up to you, be at peace with all men. So I think you should do that, as far as it be up to you. Go as far as you can to make peace. Go as far as you can to reconcile. Do as much as you can to love Jesus with all that you are. And let it, let it have influence over everything you do with whoever you meet. Some relationships will be changed as a result of that humility and obedience to Christ. Some will not. But God will give you peace. God will help you go, you did exactly what I asked you to do. And he'll give you peace even in the middle of some broken situations. I want us to close this morning, and I want us to read Paul's words together. We have the 1 Corinthians text up there. I want us to read this together, and as we read through these specifics as we close, is there one of these things that maybe you need to work on a little bit? May these, may these reach into our soul and remind us of who God wants us to be. Can we read this together out loud? Here we go. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Come on. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Heavenly Father, we come before you as broken, sinful people in need of your grace and thankful, God, that you've given it to us in Jesus. Lord, we acknowledge that there is brokenness in our families. There is sinfulness in our families. There are uh, ulterior motives and deception and wounds and abuse. There's, oh, there's, the list just goes on and on and on. But God, we believe your grace is greater than any wound. We believe your hope can be extended to any broken, sinful, abusive, difficult situation. Because you're greater than anything we face. God, if there are, there are issues, and I know there are, and even I say the word if, I know there are. If there are issues in families here today, God, wherever they are, whether it's marriage relationships or wherever, God, would you... Holy Spirit of the living God, move into our souls, into our hearts in such a way that you lead us to love you most and to love everyone else with that kind of love, the love that you had for us, Jesus, a sacrificial, honoring love. And when it comes to our families, God, give us a simplicity of just following the instructions of your word, trusting the design of your word and being obedient to your commands in your word, it's just that simple. God, you want us to flourish. You want us to have joy. You want us to have a relationship in our families and marriages with our kids 
that is second to none only to you. How do we get there, God, apart from submitting our lives to you? Looking at you, Lord, as the creator and inventor of the family and saying, Jesus, would you help us to redirect and let it start in the mirror, God. Let it start in me. Help me to learn to love my wife the way you loved the church and gave yourself up for her. Help me to love my kids. Help me to love my extended family, my parents, my brothers and sisters, and everyone around, Lord, the way you loved. Father God, would you do a work in this place this morning, even in this altar area? There may be husbands and wives that need to come down to this altar area and pray and seek you. They may need to pray right where they are. They might need to just bow their heads and seek you, Lord. Would you do a work here, Father God, that is bigger than even just this moment, that we would reach through our lives, through our marriages, and into the generations of our children, bring health and healing and hope, God, that is bigger even than this moment in this place. Would you do it now, Father God, by your grace and mercy, in Jesus' precious name, amen.